Refuel with New Synergy Gasoline. Developed in the same ExxonMobil research lab as F1 Fuels, New Synergy Gasoline has been through and passed some of the most stringent tests ever developed, making it ExxonMobil's most tested fuel ever. Synergy Gasoline is engineered with seven key ingredients, including dual detergents to help keep your engine cleaner. New Synergy Gasoline, only available at ExxonMobil. Energy lives here. Visit exxon.com, that's E-X-X-O-N.com, or mobile.com, that's M-O-B-I-L.com, for more information. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. And on the other line is my fellow Ringer writer, Michael Bauman. Michael, happy to have you. Hello. Hello. Today we're talking about short players, but we do not have a short show. So we're going to get started. According to Baseball References, wins above replacement player, the second and third most productive players in baseball this season behind Mike Trout have been Houston's Jose Altuve and Boston's Mookie Betts. If the season ended today, Altuve would already have the best statistical season by a player listed at 5'6 or shorter since World War II, and he's on track to surpass sliding Billy Hamilton's all-time best 5'6 or shorter season from 1894. That's the original Billy Hamilton. Altuve is leading the majors in batting average and on base percentage, and overall, only Trout has hit better on a per-plate appearance basis. Betts, who is a few inches taller but still undersized by big league standards, is showing power at a young age that the sport hasn't seen in a player his height since Mel Ott in the early 1930s. Both of these guys are well-rounded, charismatic, ultra-entertaining players, and because they don't fit the typical physical profile for superstars, they had pretty interesting origin stories. So we're going to talk to two people who played pretty important parts in those stories. Later in the show, we'll be talking to Ami Alsade, the vice president of amateur and international scouting for the Red Sox, who was the team's amateur scouting director when Betts was drafted in 2011. But first, we are welcoming in our first guest, Ricky Bennett, who's been a major league scout for the Pirates for the past few years. And before that was with the Astros from late 2004 through the end of 2012, which was Altuve's first full season. And during his time with the Astros, Ricky was a man of many titles, director of player development, director of pro scouting, assistant GM. But when a 16-year-old Jose Altuve was signed out of Venezuela as an amateur free agent in March of 2007 for a mere $15,000, Ricky was the Astros farm director, which means that he was one of the first people to be introduced to Jose Altuve. He knew about Altuve before knowing about Altuve became cool. Ricky, thanks for coming on. Hey, not a problem. Thanks for having me. So I'm sure you have recounted the origin story of Jose Altuve many times, but hopefully you don't get too tired of talking about it because he's come such a long way since then. So can you kind of fill us in on how the Astros found him, how you heard about him initially, what your first reaction was? Yeah, well, it's, it's an interesting story. Uh, when we, as you mentioned, when we signed him in uh, in the spring of 2007, he uh, he spent the first several months in our academy over in Venezuela, and a couple months later, at the at the conclusion of that season, I, along with two or three other scouts and staff members, went to Venezuela to to see our players, you know, one last time before we make final decisions to come to the states for the following year. And before I get over there, or when I get there. Uh, Omar Omar Lopez, who ran our academy in Venezuela, says to me, he said, hey, I know we've made most most of our decisions on players coming to the States for 2008, but you need to take a look at this one kid we just signed here this year. And at that time, we normally kept our young players in Venezuela for at least two seasons. Mm -hmm. And for Jose, he only completed his first season. So 
our thought, our initial thought process was to keep him there for at least another year before we brought him, you know, over to the states. So uh, we go over to Venezuela and we watch our kids play uh, one final time that winter. And for five days, I watched Jose and I couldn't take my eyes off of him. He played the game with such flash, with such passion. He always seemed to be in the right place at the right time. And at the end of the week, I looked to uh, our our Venezuelan coordinator, Omar. I said, Omar. I want to take him home with me. He's on. He's coming to the states next year. <laughs> so that was that was my my first impression of, of Jose. Uh, what you see today is the same player he was seven eight years ago when we signed him in Venezuela. I mean, he just had that way about him. He he was an energetic kid. Players gravitated to him. You just knew he was special. And he had a big heart, and uh, it's good to see him perform the way he's performing today. Had he gotten most of his growing in by then? Well, he, he the 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 strain. He was still little. I mean, you know, our scout who uh, ran Venezuela, Al Padrique, he you know he didn't like small players. But the way you know Jose went out and the way he played the game and the way he worked out, he just you know he caught Al's eye. And uh, you know, we fortunately for us, we were able to sign him and. And bring him to our academy, and you know, from that point on, he he just turned into a special player. Obviously, you know, you you talk about the way he plays the game, and he still has that sort of panache, that charisma on the field. But just in terms of size, like obviously, you want the big, strong, stereotypical guys. But just because he's different than everybody else, does that does that help a, a player stand out more at something like a an amateur tryout or or in a complex? Yeah, I mean, and, and that was the case for Jose. He was he was little. I mean, you knew that. You always questioned, you know, would he be able to do it at the major league level because of his lack of size. And you know, when he was in when he was in the minor leagues, we've always we always challenged him to see if he can handle that challenge. And every, you know, every barrier we put in front of him, he he accepted it and he 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 went after it. He worked hard and he you know he overcame all challenges. And early on in his in his young career. Actually, the first time he came to the States, his first season, he went out and he hit 284. And at that time, I felt like he needed to learn the strike zone. He needed to walk more real aggressive early in the count. So we actually, we sat him down and said, hey, we want you to repeat this rookie level so you so you can learn to become a leadoff hitter. And he did not like that. He felt like he was ready to go to the next level. He hit 285. But I just felt he needed a little more of a foundation at the lower levels before we promoted him. Well, he didn't like it, and we we had a heart to heart, and he was he was upset with me. He didn't want to talk to me for a while. Well, he went out and hit 325. I said, "Okay, Jose, you're going to the next level," <laughs> and that was the thing we noticed about him early on in his career is that, you know, despite his size. He was always able to meet the challenge and put his best foot forward, and he did that from day one. We're sort of operating from this uh, standpoint of if you're short, that's some sort of a handicap. Now, like what from a scouting perspective or like, you know, what actions on a baseball field are harder to do if you're short? Really, for him, it's it's an advantage because he's, he's, he's short in stature. He's a, He has a small strike zone. Mm-hmm. He has shorter arms, but that allows him to barrel the ball consistently. I mean, you can't pitch him inside. You can't pitch him in up. He just has a natural knack and a natural ability to put the barrel of the bat on the ball in all parts of the strike zone. And that's that's unusual for most guys, and especially if you're short. Uh, it makes it that much more difficult, but he just has the natural ability to put the bat on the ball. 
and you don't see that very often, especially to the level that he does. And so as the farm director, you're seeing all the reports from your coaches at various levels, your managers at various levels, people who are scouting your own system. So what was the sentiment? I mean, I'm sure everyone liked his attitude, but was there a dissenting voice here and there? Were there still people, even after he was in the system, saying he's not going to make it? Well, you know, I think collectively as as a group, we all we all knew what type of makeup he had. We knew how big his heart was. We knew his passion for the game. It was infectious, and our staff all knew that, and we all loved him. I mean, he's a he's a coach's dream. You tell him you tell him something once, he'll do it. You don't have to tell him again. And he did things on the baseball field that number one, you don't necessarily necessarily teach. But he just had the instincts, and he, he did things that you don't see in an 18-year-old, 19-year-old players. Like, did he just do what I thought he did? And he did it over and over. So we were always of the mindset, okay, it's time to, you know, give him another challenge. Give him an, I know he's small. I know he's, you know, he's got a small stature. But let's see if he can handle the next level. Let's see if he can handle the next challenge. And every time we put something in front of him, he, he was up to the challenge, and he, and he performed. So it was. We all felt that it was just a matter of time. We no one really knew how good he could be, but we all knew that he had a big heart. He had passion for the game, and he was a winning baseball player. We knew that for a fact. That was obvious. Yeah, because that's kind of what I'm wondering. Like, you know, what sort of OFPs are people putting on him at this point? You know, even even knowing that he has the makeup and will never give up and thinks he can make it. Was it kind of, you know, if he makes it, he'll be a role player, he'll be a bench guy, he'll be a utility guy, he'll be right, a, an average right. player. Like, did anyone see stardom? No, I mean, we all we all felt that he was going to be a good Major League Baseball player. But I don't think, looking back on it now, I don't think any of us thought he had a chance to be a league MVP or a perennial all-star. And, I mean, he's, I think he's approaching almost a thousand hits, you know, already in his career, which is, you know, is... A huge accomplishment. I think he's close to breaking the, the all-time Astros record for, you know, fewest games played uh, to reach a thousand hits. I mean, I don't think any of us across the board felt that he was going to be that type of player. A good player, but a great player, I don't think any of us felt that way. Looking back on it now. Right. And, I mean, were there, you know, I, I would assume that the skepticism was mainly about the power, that obviously he could get the bat to the ball and he could make contact, but... Yeah, I mean, I think I think the, the one thing that always came up in our conversations was because of his lack of size, was he going to be big enough, strong enough, physical enough to handle the velocity, a 95, 96, 97 mile an hour fastball? And could he maintain the level of play for, you know, for the course of a full season, 140, 150 games? We just didn't know it physically if he could handle that day-in, day-out grind of a Major League Baseball season. We knew he had all the other intangibles, but physically, we just didn't know how his body was going to hold up because of his lack of size. There was something that uh, that Eric Longenhagen of Fangraph said about Altuve a couple weeks ago that sort of stuck out with me, and that's he was talking about the difference between being short and being small. And you look at Altuve now, and he's you know he's built like like a you know a third down running back. He's you know he's pretty muscular, and obviously he's got that you know twenty twenty five home run power now. You knew him as a teenager. When did that transformation happen? When did he start filling out? I, I really thought he started to really fill out about uh, about four years ago, three or four years ago. I want to say 2012, 2013, when I watched him play, he, he was bigger, physically stronger, faster. He really dedicated.
dedicated himself. I think once he got to the big leagues and proved to himself that he could play at that level, it made him commit to the game that much more and work that much that much harder to be a good player. So he actually gained more confidence. He was always a confident kid, but he gained even more confidence after he had success at the major league level, and he just took it to another level with his with his off season program, his weightlifting, and he got bigger, he got stronger, and his numbers his numbers continued to go up. I mean, what he's doing at the major league level now, he never did in the minor leagues. So that that's a testament to his work ethic and and all the work that he's put in to make himself you know a good player because he he just he turned it to a, turned it up to another level. Was he always known as a very coachable player, or did he just sort of always instinctively know what to do? Both. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He always he always had the instincts to do things that other young players didn't do, whether it was throw behind runners, whether it's take the extra base. Uh, he just he he always had that knack of making the right play, whether it's you know defensively on the bases or at the plate. He always knew what to do. I mean, he still you know needed instruction, but you, if you told him something once, he'll say, "Oh, okay, yeah, I got it. That makes sense," and he'll do it. And you you'd never have to tell him again. So I mean, it's it's uh, it's a unique talent that he had uh, that was pretty apparent from from day one when he came into the organization. The special kid. A few years ago, I was on on a college baseball beat and uh, getting up close to to those players and looking at them like in person versus looking at the roster. Uh, one thing that I found out is that nobody who's listed at six foot is actually within like three inches of of actually being six foot. Is you know is that a little a little bit of a challenge as a scout when you're going to see a minor leaguer or a you know or an amateur player that you're not familiar with? You know you don't know what you're going to get size wise. Yeah, I mean that, that's a, that's an interesting question because every every day when I go to the ballpark, I'll, I'll grab a roster and I'll look down the roster and I'm thinking, okay, six three, six four, and I'm looking at the guys like the guy's not six three or six four, so you just have to find creative ways to get close to the guys to really size them up and see how big they they really are. You know, the biggest difference between young minor league players and major league players is size and strength and mass. So if there are players, if there's players out there that that I like or we like, I make it a point to go up there and try to get close to them to make sure that you know the six three that they're listed on on the roster is actually six three and not six foot. <laughs> and if there's a discrepancy that, that you can tell, that's something you'll you'll hand in with your notes, or is that like a you'll get a, a call from the GM at the trade deadline? Hey, you know we're we're looking at this kid. Is he actually as as big as he uh, as he says he is? Exactly, exactly. And a lot of times when players sign, whether it's, you know, from Latin America or, or through the draft out of high school or even college, the the height and weight that they're listed at at the time that they sign usually stays in the in the database until someone changes it. So, you know, a college junior coming out of the draft may be six one, one hundred and eighty five pounds, and I see him four years later, he may have added fifteen pounds. Well, he's going to be listed under that same height and weight that he was drafted at. Mm-hmm. So, so, so we always have to be mindful of, you know, making sure you check the height and weight on guys to make sure it's accurate. Because if I if I tell if I tell a GM he's six three, you better be six <laughs> three. 
Yeah, I'm not sure Altuve's are totally accurate. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't know what he's listed at. He's probably listed around 5'8 or 5'9. And he's... Yeah. he's listed at 5'6. He used to be used to be listed at 5'5, five, five, and that was when the, the how many Altuve's thing happened. So I, they changed his, his listed height, height and weight. I don't know if we've changed the, the unit of measure to match. Oh, see, I'm, I'm looking at a, I'm looking at a roster here. He's listed at 5'6, 165, and he's probably 5'6, probably 180. Uh-huh. So he's probably 15 pounds heavier now than he was when he signed, you know, several years ago. So if you had to project Altuve, does the fact that he has maximized or more than maximized his talent to this point, I mean, if you're projecting him in the future, is there any way to tell, you know, where he settles in as a player, whether he has reached his ceiling, which is already higher than anyone else ever could have projected? Yeah, I don't I don't see him slowing down anytime soon, to be honest with you. I mean, the way he's playing the game now is, is unbelievable. He, I mean, he set the bar in terms of his work ethic and how he approaches the game. That one, I know that won't change because it's not in his makeup and he's, he's in his prime. He's 26 years old. I don't see him slowing down for, for several years from now. I think he's, he's reached his potential and he's maximized his talent. And, uh, you know, I think he's going to continue to put up the numbers that he's putting up this year. I think it's a great story. Yeah, so the Pirates are playing the Astros in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Is your job now to figure out how to get Jose Altuve out? Yes, that's going to be a tough challenge. I'm not quite sure how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd think that, you know, given your history with him, you'd have more insight, but he's a completely different player than he was when you were in Houston four years ago at this point. Yeah, the the, the only thing that comes to mind for me and I think he, he it's it's good and bad. He fights because he wants to perform in the clutch, because he wants to do well all the time, because he's such he he says he has such a winning attitude. Sometimes he tries too hard in certain situations and get over aggressive and expands the strike zone or you know, or makes a bad throw because he wants to make the play so much that he'll make aggressive mistakes in certain situations that, you know, make may cost a game or two here and there, but it's not for the lack of effort. But that's probably the only negative I would say. And it's really not a negative. It's just I mean he just tries so hard he wants to make a play and sometimes he makes aggressive errors. And I'll take that in a ball player any day. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we got a sneak preview of the Pirates advanced scouting report on Jose <laughs> Um and lastly, has his success changed the way you scout players? Do you look at him as just an outlier that you can't really comp to anyone else? Or is there something that you've seen in his growth over the years that you now kind of file away in the back of your mind when you're looking at players down the road? You'll think maybe I'll be not quite as quick to, to write someone off because I have witnessed the evolution of Jose Altuve. Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. I mean, it's it was a huge learning experience for me as an executive and, a, and as a scout and an evaluator is, you know, never underestimate the heart of a player in terms of their passion for the game, their commitment for the game. And secondly, you know, don't don't look past the body. You know, if a guy is undersized, but he has ability and he has skills to perform at a high level, don't underestimate the lack of size. And on the other end, if a guy is overweight or extremely large, you know, take that into an account because guys change, guys have passion for the game, and they can overcome some of those things, some of those physical traits that are not necessarily ideal. Um, you can miss out on a player. 
So from that from that standpoint, I have changed my mindset because of Jose and what he's able to do despite despite his size. All right. Well, for your sake, I'm sorry that you and Altuve aren't on the same side anymore because he's yeah. Uh... <laughs> well, I always root for him. It's, he's a he's a special person, special special player, and uh, he's worked hard to put himself in a position to have the success that he's had, and I'm I'm extremely happy and proud of him. All right. Well, Ricky Bennett, thank you very much for coming on and giving us the Altuve origin story. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay, before we talk to Amiel Sade about Mookie Betts, let's pause for a quick salute to our sponsors, starting with New Synergy Gasoline, Exxon and Mobil's most tested fuel ever. It's been through and passed some of the most stringent tests ever developed. Developed in the same Exxon Mobil research lab as their F1 fuels, New Synergy Gasoline is engineered by chemists who understand the science behind keeping engines clean and know the complexities of modern car technology. That's why it's formulated to keep modern fuel injectors clean while still working great on older engines. And New Synergy is also engineered with seven key ingredients each with its own unique function to help make Synergy Exxon and Mobil's best fuel ever, including dual detergents to help clean your engine and corrosion inhibitor, which is designed to help prevent rust from threatening your engine and its performance. Refuel with new Synergy gasoline today, only available at the almost 11,000 Exxon and Mobil stations across the U.S. Energy lives here. Visit exxon.com, that's E-X-X-O-N.com, or mobile.com, that's M-O-B-I-L.com, for more information. We have a new sponsor today to call your attention to Canary, which is a complete security system in a single device. Canary has a 1080p HD camera complete with a wide-angle lens, motion detection, and night vision. You can watch your home live at any time, even if you aren't in it. Canary's algorithms send you intelligent notifications when something out of the ordinary is happening at home. You decide how many or few notifications Canary sends by adjusting a sensitivity slider in-app. Canary has a 90-decibel emergency response siren that's loud enough to scare off intruders. And Canary also pulls in local police and fire department numbers near your home, so if you're traveling, you can quickly get in touch with the right people. Canary can automatically change modes when you or your family leave or come home, so if you don't want the camera on when you're there, You can set Canary to change to private automatically, which means that its mic and camera are completely turned off when you're home. Canary monitors your home's temperature, humidity, and air quality to protect against the things you can't see or hear. And it has best-in-class night vision, so you can see just as well in a pitch-black room as you can during the day. Probably pretty important for security purposes, also just kind of cool. Perhaps most important, Canary has no monthly fees, so you get the device and your expenses are over. I just got my first Canary device, and as someone who works from home and spends a lot of time sitting in computer typing or talking into a mic looking forward to finding out whether canary can actually detect my daily routine or whether my apartment seems empty even when i'm inside it but at the very least i can rest easy knowing that no one is intruding while i'm putting my opinions on the internet so check out canary today all right we're back with our second guest amiel sade he has been with the red sox for going on 15 seasons now so he's been there since the pre-world series winning days and he has Risen to VP of Amateur and International Scouting for the team, and during the period we are interested in, the the origin story of Mookie Betts, he was the director of Amateur Scouting. That was from 2010 through 2014, so the Mookie Betts draft was his second as the director of Amateur Scouting. So welcome to the show, Amiel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we know that the Red Sox were high on bets, that their scouts really liked bets. They wanted to get bets. He was your guy in that draft or one of your guys. But can you tell us anything about where he was on your board, how you decided that the fifth round and the 172nd overall pick was where you were going to take him? Did you have him much higher than that and you felt like you could wait? Or how did that play out? Oh, we should have had him. Probably 1-1, one, one, right? <laughs> right. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I look back on our board sometimes, and uh, we actually had it pretty high, but but certainly not high enough looking back on it now. But uh, fortunately for us, we were able to uh, to get him, as you remind me, with 172nd pick. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot that goes into the Mookie story because I think, as people probably have, it's been well documented, uh, you know, Danny Watkins, our area scout, had identified him pretty early in the process, really liked him as an athlete and a, a baseball player, but, but, you know, playing in Tennessee, not as frequent of the looks that we might get as in, in some of the more fruitful areas. We spent a lot of time with Mookie as much as we could coming out of basketball. And then also, and also in, in his season, which I, which I believe at that time was, uh, had a lot of rain outs and just was a, was a tougher place believe it or not, a tougher area to scout for us, for most people. But we kind of laid in the weeds. And, you know, looking back on it, we had, you know, fifth round is where we took him. We certainly had him higher on our board, probably somewhere in that range of the second round. Mm-hmm. The, the, the draft has shifted uh, quite a bit um, since the new CBA. So back then you were, you know, guys who slid out, um, slid a little bit deeper, had higher asking prices. Uh, in Mookie's case, we were able to um, dual sport him, which, which you know, we were able to split his contract up over five years. Helped us internally with our budget, and, and he had a fairly strong commitment to University of Tennessee at the time. So we, we felt pretty confident, given the scouting season, the teams we knew that were on, and we felt pretty confident that we could we could wait on him a couple rounds and then potentially potentially get him in one of those mid rounds. Uh, and, and, and luckily for us, we did. I think along the way. We, we got a lot of players that our scouts really like. Some have, have been fairly successful, and others are still playing their way to the major leagues and have a chance to get there. But but certainly none were as talented or productive as Bukin. So uh, looking back on it, I wish we took him a little bit higher, but I'm glad we got him where we did. Yeah, and so you did have several picks before that. How do you try to get a sense of whether someone will take him before that. I mean, I guess, you know, you've been to the games, you've seen whether there are other scouts around, but I guess you never know for sure if there's some other team that likes him roughly as much as you do and might take him in the second round or the third round or the fourth round. So how do you try to gather intelligence and make that decision about how far you can let him fall? So some of it's instincts. Just, just having the experience of being in the draft, listening to some of your scouts. I think um, high school players are a lot easier than college players because you can kind of gauge who's at their teams and when. So as a lot of these high school players uh, get to the last few games of their season, you what we, what we call like scouts to scouts, right? So you, you're going out to the game, you're obviously getting another look at Mookie Pat, but you're also keeping an eye on who's there. And then we talk amongst ourselves and, one of, the, one of your scouts will go in and say, oh, Kansas City was there. And then they won't be there the next two times. So you say, oh, they're, they're players, but they're not. Maybe they're not significant players. Or another team was there. And, you know, so typically the teams that are on them at the end are usually, you know, are usually at the last two games. And so you get a better sense for the high school player. So it's a, it's a bit of a judgment call. It's certainly not very scientific. And, and I think... When you're sitting in the draft room, you know, I've always, I've always said you got to take the guys your scouts really like. And Mookie was one of those guys. I mean, we had a lot, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot, a lot of just a gut feel for him from our scouts. And uh, 
I remember passing on Mookie in the fourth round and looking around the room and, and saw a few faces scouts that looked like they wanted to wring my neck. <laughs> uh, so I was uh, I was a little nervous about not getting him, and I do I do really remember that because um, our guys really liked him. And so I think it's just a judgment call, and you know it's hey we think this guy above him has been scouted more heavily, or maybe we have a better grade on him, or maybe it's a different dynamic. You know, you can sign him for a little bit less, and you're going to spend some money later on. So there's a little bit of strategy. Fortunately, looking back, uh, we made the right call by waiting and, and still able to get some guys that hopefully will help our big league team. Is that unusual to have the scouts so uh, unified behind one guy that you're targeting in you know, rounds three, four, five, that, that area? No. I think um, it's funny because, you know, guys uh, guys gravitate to the, you know, I mean, everybody everybody loves Chris Bryant or everybody loves, you know, Andrew Benintendi or whoever, you know, your top pick. Everybody loves him. And then and, and the industry loves him, right? So I think there's a little bit of a, you know, guy, uh, there's, there's a little bit of that, you know, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy in some way. Like you get that guy. Everybody likes that guy, and everybody knows that it's me that got that liked him, and, and he's not he's not necessarily the industry guy, so it makes us all feel really good about ourselves. <laughs> and, and so I think I think there's there's that scouting, and it's it's part of why we do our job, right? It's like I always say, I mean, like, I mean, my wife, my daughter probably could pick Bryce Harper, right? I mean, you know, he's that these guys are these guys are the cream of the crop. You get to the the top of the draft, but then it's those mid rounds where you kind of make your money, and um, and I think that's why scouts really enjoy it. And so there is a bit of a look. There's there's no doubt that I think there's some momentum that builds throughout the year. I go see Mookie Betts, and I oh man, I really liked them. And then you know our other our national cross checker really liked them, and now someone else what really wants to see him, and now he sees him and he really likes them. You know, so there's a little bit of that. I mean. There's no doubt. I mean, you try to you try to stay away from all the biases as much as possible, but it's really hard, and it happens. I'm sure it happens within every organization. So that's why you're always high fiving on the day after the draft because you get a bunch of guys everybody really likes for the most part. So I, I don't think Mookie, for instance. I mean, I could tell you other guys we took in the fourth, fifth round. Some who've been very successful that we uh, that we liked, and some who've that everybody likes and some who've been who, who have made it uh, so I, I'm not sure that that's an anomaly so you guys all liked him and he turned into you know one of the best players in baseball what kind of player did you think you were getting back then yeah I look I look back on our reports a lot and, uh, and it's so funny because I think the only thing we didn't have a great feel for, which I think everybody in baseball, I mean, there's, there's no way anybody can tell you that they saw Mookie Betts as a high school player and thought he was going to hit for this much power. And I look back on all the reports, and, and everybody has had excellent athletes, excellent instincts, and when I say excellent, I mean, that's, you don't typically get a lot of those, especially with the instincts. You know, so you, so you have a guy who's excellent athlete, excellent instincts, you know, plus hitter, Plus defender, everyone thought he was going to be an infielder for the most part. Uh, had a chance to stand the infield. Base stealer, and then, uh, you know, a guy who's going to hit for a little bit of power, you know, maybe 45, 50-ish. So a really good everyday guy, 
possible all-star, not MVP candidate, you know, year in and year out. And I think what separated him is the power. I think everybody thought this guy was going to be a solid to above average major league player. You know, he's turned out to be, it's clear, he turned out to be one of the top three, well, three to five players in the league. And, 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 and the separator for me has been the power. So where do you think that came from? And, you know, maybe it's tied to his physique to some extent. What was he like physically when you drafted him? And what did you project him to be like? So I think looking back on it, there, there are a few lessons. I mean, I, I, I think if you look at our outfield, you know, you could probably get a sense that we're not afraid that the average height of our outfield is probably 5'9". <laughs> nine. Right. You know? So I, I personally don't think power is necessarily driven by size. I think there are other attributes that lead to power. And Mookie had a lot of those attributes. You know, hand eye, bat speed, ability to control the strike zone. There were a lot of there are a lot of those things. I think the thing that maybe we didn't give him enough credit for, which looking back on it now makes a lot of sense. This guy we talked so much about his bowling and um, how how can the bowling really help him how does this translate, right? We knew he was an unbelievable bowler, but how is this going to translate into being a good hitter? And the, the one thing we spent a lot of time with was body control, right? So you go up and you got a bowl. I mean, I, I'm not a good bowler, but maybe you guys are. Nope. Um, no, but, no. But, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard to repeat your bowling stroke, right? And this guy's obviously, his muscle memory allows him to repeat his bowling stroke day in and day out because he's... He's bowling perfect games, and he's bowling these ridiculous numbers at 16 years old, and he's been doing it great. And so we talked a little bit about that, and I actually think that does that does play into his swing. The, the thing I didn't really ever think about was he started bowling at three or four years old. Think about how much hand strength he probably gained. I mean, he's not a big guy, so you don't think of a guy having really strong hands. And to me, strong hands really translate into power so much. But, I mean, I, you know, you bowl, you bowl one night, and the next morning you have that, like, awkward feeling in your hands sometimes. Like, man, I can't believe my hands hurt, right? Right. I thought that was just because I was out of shape. but <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, it, was, it might, might be both. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's, and, I, and I think looking back on it, we didn't. you don't even think about it, right? Like, the, his hand strength is probably, I guarantee you, he probably has some of the strongest hands in the draft just from, from doing that for, for so many years and doing it as a kid and gripping a, a bowling ball. And he probably never realized it translated. But I, but I think it did, and, it, and it, it probably helped account for some of the ability to, to uh, not only with the bat, the bat speed, but also bat control and barrel the baseball. You know, it's been fairly well reported, probably better reported than you would all like, that he was kind of this, you know, maybe early test case for neuroscouting and, you know, the computer exercises that test reaction time and pitch recognition to a certain extent. And, you know, I'm sure that's still to some degree an unproven technology. And if that was really the first year that it was used in earnest, then I'm sure it was seen as even more of a, you know, experimental trial case. But did the fact that he performed well on those tests really bump him up your draft board? Was it just further confirmation of your already positive impression of him? Did it really 
make a big difference at any point in his career, or was it really just, you know, further corroboration? Well, I think he got, I mean, it was definitely experimental at the time. He, he definitely scored very well. We had absolutely no idea what that meant um, right. from the amateur level. So I think we'd be uh, somewhat reckless to say, let's let's push this guy off the board because, he's, you know, we believe in what we were doing. But I think, you know, as you put it, it's, it was probably help. It was a little bit of further confirmation of players you really like. But then, you know, I mean, I think there have been so many stories and so many stories that are probably misreported. We didn't do these neurocognitive testing and then identify a player and then go out and say, oh, let's go see that player. You know, we identify the players, we then test them, and then we talk about it, you know, we talk about it in the draft room. So many times we didn't even, you know, especially back then, we didn't get the scores until later on. But so, yes, it helped us kind of feel better and puff our chest out a little bit. Like, oh, this is great. If if this guy really kind of does what we think he's going to do and he has this score, maybe this, maybe this does help. And, uh, and you know, we believe in it as a player development tool and we were using it as a player development tool at the time. And, and so it was a really good kind of introduction to the organization. He was amazed when you tell him about all this. And I think he was also like, He's also kind of taken aback, like, why is everyone talking about this? I, I took the test once. <laughs> uh, I'm a pretty good baseball player. I don't, I don't think this test has anything to do with why he was <laughs> a good baseball player. Nor does it really have a, you know, a reason. I mean, I think, I think the process was really good with him. And, and I think, like, if you look back, take the guys your scouts like, he kind of checked off a lot, a lot of boxes. And when that happens, doesn't mean you're gonna, you're gonna have success. But, but it does mean you're going to feel really good about the pick. And fortunately, we had both. So in high school, he was moving pretty comfortably between shortstop and center field and second base, just as he has at higher levels. Did you have a good sense of what you thought his natural position was or his eventual full-time position would be? Has he surprised you on defense in any way as he has with his power at the plate? Well, I, I can assure you that nobody thought he was going to be a right fielder. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think for the most part, everybody thought he was going to play short or second, and some that, some that felt he could end up in center field. We, we, we didn't want to, we, we weren't going to take anything away from him. We were going to keep him in the middle of the diamond. We felt like his athleticism and instincts would play in the middle of the diamond. And, and so I think early on, part of the thing that was that, that made our decision a lot easier, and I don't, I don't know how much you followed Pookie's career early on. He, he signs in 2011, he goes out, I mean, back then you signed in August, so he goes out, he plays like three games in the GCL, kind of needs a bit of the little kick in the ass to be professionalized, so to speak, gets out the next year, so now he starts an extended and goes to Lowell. So this is 2012, well, then we draft Evan Herrero playing shortstop. So... You have a college shortstop who can really defend, who's had a proven track record. And you have Mookie, who's playing short, who probably made seven or eight errors in you know, a month and a half or some, something like that. And a lot of throwing errors and kind of playing out of control. We were moving him over to second, flipping him around, and he seemed a lot more comfortable at second base than he did at shortstop as when the game kind of sped up. I mean, I think in high school you project them out, but then once you get once the game speeds up, you kind of see how these guys react and what their where their natural position. They kind of tell you where their natural position is. 
And so I think it was it was only fitting to move him over a second. And and I think it also I remember talking to him and he said I think it took a little bit of stress off his back that he was able to focus on the offense and he kinda took off um short the next year, but shortly after, you know, once he was able to just focus on that one position, a position he didn't make a lot of errors at and he was still developing at second base. And so I think that's where ultimately we, a lot of us thought he was going to come up through the minor leagues. Now, look, we have, we have pretty good second baseman. Right. We knew at the time we were going to have a pretty good second baseman for a long time. So playing the outfield was something we talked about introducing at the upper level. But you never know what's going to happen at the big leagues. So you don't move him off the infield and move him off second base, you know, because you, just, you don't want to, you don't want to remove that. And then, and then obviously. I think we've seen his progression in the outfield. He's turned himself into a lot of plays that he makes athletically, but he's turned himself into to a very good right fielder. And, and the truth is, is at Fenway, you need a center fielder playing right field. And and so, you know, we oftentimes talk about that. A right fielder, not, not every right fielder can play right field at Fenway for us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, our best ones, the Trot Nixon and the Josh Reddicks for, for a short period of time, some of our best right fielders have been guys that can play center field. So I think that's, that, that's kind of how he slotted in really nicely in there. And earlier in this episode, we talked about Jose Altuve, who's taken strides this year by becoming more selective, walking a little bit more. And that seems to have kind of gone in the other direction. Obviously, it hasn't hurt him. He's become a, a better player and a better hitter, too. But you know, a few years ago, he was ultra selective. He was walking twice as often as he was striking out. That was in a ball, of course. And over the past few years, he's, you know, gotten a little bit more aggressive, certainly at the major league level. He's walked a little less. He's swung a little more. Again, it's worked out perfectly fine for him. I wonder why you think that evolution has happened. Is that a reaction to his power? Has his power even surprised him? You know, is he thinking, oh, I can hit all these home runs, I, I should probably swing some more. Well, I think, first off, I mean, he plays at Fenway Park, and that helps. Right. You know, I mean, I think a guy who has the ability to, to drive the ball the way he can and turn on baseballs on the inner half, and, and for some reason, people still challenge him on the inner half, right? We see it night in and night out. Mm-hmm. So I think it's hard it's hard to lay off those pitches when you know they're going to come in on you, and you really don't have to do a whole lot with it to get it over the fence or even hit the wall. And so that you know, a lot of those wall ball doubles. So I think that that plays that plays into it a little bit. I also think the type of player he's turning himself into. I mean, it's he's arguably our best offensive player, um, and you know we're starting to see it now. And third and fourth in the lineup. So I think um, you know it, it was he's never been a guy. I, I think he's always had like discipline, but he's always been a guy that wanted to be aggressive. And he doesn't um, he doesn't miss pitches that are in the zone. You know, early in his career, we saw him, especially when he first came up, he'd swing a lot of a lot of times at those breaking balls out of the zone and chase them. And he learned, you know, I mean, he's still not perfect, but he learns how to how to handle those pitches. And and so now he gets himself into a good hitter's count, and maybe it's maybe it's just one zero, but he's he's going to get himself pitch to hit, and uh, and he typically doesn't miss it. And and uh, I just think that there's different styles of of, um, of hitting and, and of 
knowing what type of player you are and and Mookie's kind of evolving into he always says he doesn't have, he doesn't have this much power. He doesn't know where he gets this much power from, but it's just just this natural ability that backs into baseball and you know, obviously hit it really hard and it curl it up and do everything you need to do in order to get to drive the ball to all fields really. Yeah. And you touched on it briefly in that answer, but I was going to ask you about it. He still sees a lot of strikes. You know, he has the sixth highest zone rate of the 160 or so qualified hitters this year. Over 51% of the pitches he sees are in the strike zone. And usually there's a, a pretty strong inverse correlation there between how much power you have and how many pitches you see in the strike zone. If you have a lot of power, pitchers avoid throwing you pitches you can hit with power. And so if you look at him, you know, of those top 10 guys in zone rate, I I think his isolated power is about twice as high as the average of the other nine in that top 10. I mean, he's seeing as many strikes as guys like Johnny Javitella and Jose Iglesias, and he's in the top 10 in the league in home runs. And I just have to wonder why that is. Obviously, you're not reading other teams' advance reports, but are people still underestimating him based on his size, even though he's been putting up these numbers for a while now? Uh, gosh. I mean, I'd have to think the league's smarter than that. Right. Um, <laughs> I think it's just our lineup. I mean, you know, you you, you get this guy on, and shoot, now you got to deal with Detroit and Bogey and and you know, obviously those guys they have ups and downs in their in their year, but there's always someone you know, Bogey Bogey struggles, Pedroia gets hot. Pedroia's struggling, Bogey's hot. And then then you get yourself into a really bad inning because now all of a sudden you have first second or first and third and then Poppy's coming up. And I think John, you know, like put it like our lineup could be relentless at times when and um, and when we're when we're swinging the bats well, especially, you know, I, I just think in a pitcher's mind it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what what our guys are doing. When you look at that lineup card and you see Pedroia, Bogart, David, Hanley, you're like, man, I gotta get the first out. Mamuki was leaping off, and I think that I think that has to play into it. Like, you don't want to walk this guy right away, and and then and set yourself up for what could be a pretty big hitting. So I don't know. I mean, I I I don't. I'd have a hard time believing people underestimate him. But again, I don't see other people's scouting reports. So, right. So you alluded earlier to uh, you guys having a lot of power in your outfield, despite not having a lot of vertical height. And I wanted to, since we got you here, ask you about uh, Andrew Benatendi and Jackie Bradley in turn. So Benatendi was on one level, like he had just hit 20 home runs in the SEC and won the Golden Spikes, and everybody sort of his record was very much out there. But at the same time, he only had that one year because he came out of nowhere was, you know, what was the decision-making process like to, to spend a top 10 pick on him? I mean, all the credit goes out to Mike Rickard and, and, the, and our staff. I mean, you know, Mike was very convicted on, on Andrew's bat and, and the year he had, he had a little, probably, you know, picking seven. We, we like to see a little bit more. I mean, in, in some way, uh, performance history, um, especially since he didn't play much his freshman year. But Chris Mears, our area scout, got us in early. I mean, he really, he, you know, in the fall, he had this guy top list. And so we were scouting this guy from the outset. I mean, I remember one of our cross-checkers at Vandy, one, I think it was like second or third weekend, and he, he, 
called me. We were talking about it. He goes, you know, it's really good. because I don't think teams know he's eligible or they're not on him because everybody was watching Swanson from the other side and no one was moving over to see Benatendi. So I think there was some comfort level there that we spent a lot of time with him. And that, uh, and then, and, and as, and then knowing the type of kid he was, and then, and then Mike just being able to pull the trigger and saying, this is the guy, this is for real. You know, I mean, I think, again, it goes back to, yeah, you had the performance history for a year, but you got to lean on your gut instincts sometimes, too. And, and, um, and that was the guy he wanted. And, uh, and I think that's, uh, because, you know, and, and, and on top of it, it's, you know, let's not forget about his secondary tools. I mean, a guy who could play center field and could run a little bit too. So there was there was obviously some tools that you could lean lean on if for some reason, not that you were thinking he was, his power wasn't going to play, but if for some reason his power didn't play, you know, he still had a chance to be something else, some, another type of player. But, you know, I mean, our guys just really believed in him in the bat and uh, and spent a lot, a lot of time with him. So I think... There was a there was a lot that went into that decision making process, both from a performance analysis to to spending a lot of time scouting the kid and, and knowing the kid. But uh, but I'm but I'm glad we got him uh, because he's uh, he's obviously going to have major impact for the Boston Red Sox moving forward. The other guy is is Bradley, who in that 2011 draft, uh, Betts was your eighth pick and and Bradley was your your fourth. And I have spent most of, I've spent way more time than I probably should have in the past five years figuring out how he fell to 40 after the first two years that he had. Was it, was the, the wrist injury just that much of a concern or was it that you hadn't seen him hit with the, the BB core bats yet? You know, how, how is he still available to you at 40? I, you know, I mean, it's hard for me to say because I think, I mean, I, I honestly could tell you we like, we had, we loved this kid coming into the year. It was a guy that we were we, we were we were basically checking off our list that wasn't going to get to 19. He had a bad year. He had, he underperformed that year. He had hit wrist injury. He was his own admission also in trying to hit for more power. So I think we've seen the Jackie Bradley that uh, that tries to do something that he that he shouldn't be doing and and struggles at that league. And and you know we saw that at the major league level. And I think there's to a much smaller degree, some of that happened in college. You know, so there were some teams that probably backed off him. And then I also think, you know, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, you know, people probably to this day will, will say that it's not true. But I, I think people people look at center fielders that can't, and I'll say can't run, but aren't burners. Mm-hmm. And they think they're, well, there's a chance this guy moves to the corners. And so, well, if he moves to the corner, he doesn't have power, he's a fourth outfielder, you know, you kind of, you kind of talk yourself out of this guy instead of saying, oh my God, like this guy's one of the most outstanding defensive center fielders. I don't care if he's a 50 runner or a 45 runner or whatever you think he is. Like his instincts are so good that it doesn't even, it doesn't even matter, right? Like this guy's going to get to every ball. So I think there was a bit of that, you know, so it was, it was a multitude of things. They probably played into it. And then he had a, he had a, you know, South Carolina, he had a tough agent. You know, I mean, he had, he was represented by Scott Boris, so inevitably people are going to, um, at the time, probably get scared off of it, whether or not, you know, this guy's going to go back to school. He's got a strong commitment, and he's got an agent, and he's flying. So I have to believe some, you know, I always try to think what, what else were other teams thinking, but I, I do think probably some of that went into 
played a factor too. And you brought up his speed. I think when he was coming up, the the fan perspective of of him because of where he played in the and how he looked is that he was faster than he actually is. But he gets he gets to everything with with fifty speed. And how, you know how does you talked about his instincts? Like is just that it? He's just that good at reading the ball off the bat? Yeah, I mean I. I said this for years and we watched this guy go shag um before games in college and in the minor leagues and he he plays balls off the bat he probably before a game he probably gets three games in of fly balls because he's just playing every ball off the bat Mm. and i remember okay when i first started scouting i remember watching tony Gwynn jr and he he was outstanding at center center fielder and and i remember old scout telling me watch him watch how he moves before the ball's hit pretty much and uh, and that's what Jackie does. I really believe that. Like these guys, their instincts. First of all, they know where the pitches. They, they they watch where every pitch is where every pitch is pitched, and and so they, their positioning is probably better than most people because of their experience. But also, these guys just they 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 can they get that extra step before balls hit, and it can be the difference in in catching a baseball. And so, you know, I mean, there's no doubt that plays into it and his instincts are I think I mean obviously as we start to learn more about Statcast and some of the defensive metrics we'll probably see how good he how, how good he is from an analytical standpoint but I think um I think our eyes tell us he's he's got to be the best or one of the best center fielders in the league and then I mean to, to top it all off yeah I get <laughs> once a week we get a highlight play mm-hmm. using his arm and uh and that's not very typical for for a lot of center fielders that have that have an eighty arm like that. Yeah. And one last one on on Bradley, like the the reason that he was he was really getting the bat knocked out of his hands a little bit his first couple of years in the the big leagues, but he's you know the past two seasons he slugged about five hundred and he looks a little bit bigger. Is it just is it that or is it some sort of like Jose Bautista like adjustment that that he's made? So if you look at Jackie's career, minus a small subset of performance at the college junior at South Carolina, you know, this guy never struggled. And and I think, you know, we we rushed him through the minor leagues and he never struggled, never faced adversity, never learned how to make adjustments, all that stuff. And so I think there was, I, I think we underestimate that, right? Like how, how hard it is to make adjustments and then gain confidence that you're going to get out of these slumps. And he, he struggled at the major league level, which is a tough place to struggle. So, I do think the confidence played a big part in it um, because he's, he's a, he carries himself differently now. He's a different guy. He believes in himself. So I think he needed to get going. I think being able to get going, working with Chile, staying in one place, knowing your name's going to be written in the lineup every day helps. I think strength definitely plays a part in it, but this guy's had power. You know what I mean? I, he had power when he was in college. We, we, we had pretty good power grades on him. And and one of the things he did really well, he was, you know, I mean, I think when you saw him when he came up to the big leagues, he was trying to pull off everything, and his swing got long and loopy, and he was very, he was pitched to very easily, and he was chasing. And when he was in college, his best swings was when he would let the ball get deep and drive the ball to left center. And I remember we talked about it. I said, this guy's going to wear out the monster. We really believed that was the type of swing he was going to have. His, his home runs, a lot of his home runs could be full side as he turns on pitches on the inner half, but this guy has the ability to kind of keep his hand at the baseball and drive it off the monster. And uh, and that was the swing we saw throughout the minor leagues. And then 
and then, and then he got out of it. And, he, and it took him you know, a year, year and a half to kind of find his swing again and find his confidence. So, you know, to answer your question, I think strength probably is part of it, but I think it's mostly a confidence of, of getting back to what your normal swing should be. But now we see Jackie struggle for a week or two, and, and then we see him get out of it, and we see him figure his way out on his own. So I, I don't – it can't just be, you know, that he's stronger now because his contact rate is much higher. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Amiel. I'm sure we've gotten you through most of your drive and maybe more. So <laughs> thanks for uh, all the time and, and information. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay. That's it for today. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back with another episode of the Ringer MLB Show on Thursday. Talk to you then.